I have uh, literally never heard Nathan compliment me, so this was uh, this is a, a huge deal. It's worth the trip over here. I woke up at 4.15 to make sure I'm here on time, and, and this, this is worth it. Uh, it. It's amazing to be speaking here uh, at Landmark. It's hard to believe. As Nathan said, he, he is a good friend of mine, which I say with pride, but people receive that with, with pity. Uh, but we... Uh, <laughs> Um, this church has played such a huge role in, in my life and in my ministry. Of course, as Nathan mentioned, my in-laws are Don and Linda Tarot. Of course, my, my beautiful wife Katie grew up here, and this church uh, formed her. And, um, and of course, uh, just through the years getting to know people uh, that have come through here, whether it's people in the ministry or just friends, or uh, I, I failed to mention my, my, my brother and sister-in-laws who, who grew up here. So this church has played a huge role, and so when Buddy uh, texted me a few weeks ago and asked if I would preach this morning. Uh, I, I felt like I had to say yes. You know, Buddy, to, to ministers of, of, I guess, my generation, Buddy is, is a huge figure. And so for Buddy to, to want to hear me preach was such a huge deal. It didn't even make sense. But then it made sense when I learned he wouldn't be here to hear me preach. <laughs> so it's kind of like bringing something to a potluck that you're not going to eat yourself, you know. You'll inflict it upon the church. So uh, I, am, I am not even the B team. I'm, I'm way, way, way down below Buddy's level. So I hope, I hope you guys will be patient, and, and I hope it's an, uh, a blessing to you guys what I have to, to share. As Nathan said, I'm the college minister at the Auburn Christian Student Center, which is sponsored by the Auburn Church of Christ. And uh, let me just do my, my duty and just say, if you know of anybody at Auburn um, who uh, is looking for a college ministry, or if you are a high schooler who's thinking about coming to Auburn, we would love to connect with you and Nathan or, or any, any of the staffers here. Wes Column can get you in touch with me. Um, and it is, it is a, a joy to be a college minister. Um, as I get older, I have to, you know, ask myself, why am I in college ministry? And I, I literally yesterday just turned 37. Um, the day before, I was uh, cleared to be off of crutches. I've been on crutches for, for about six weeks due to a knee surgery. And so for the last week around the house, I was walking with a cane, you know. And so I, I felt very old, receding hairline, almost 37, walking with a cane. And so um, often, I, you know, I have to ask myself, why am I still in campus ministry? And the answer to that is really easy. I feel called to college ministry because God God changed my life so tremendously when I was uh, in college, when I was at Auburn. Um, I came, as, as Nathan said, kind of from the Oxford, Alabama area, and um, my family bounced around different churches, but the church that I was baptized in and the church that I went to right before I came to Auburn was just this tiny country church. Um, there was probably 20 people there, and my parents, who at the time were in their uh, late 40s and, 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 and late 50s, um, they, uh, they were practically the youth ministry there. There was almost no one younger than them at the church other than my twin sister and me. And I can remember when it was announced to the church that I was going to go to Auburn University that a couple of older uh, gentlemen pulled me aside, and they, and they meant well. And like I said, this was a small country church. Almost no one had been to college. I think, I think very few of the people there had even finished high school, and so they didn't really understand, I think, what a state campus would be like. And so they were rightfully so, I guess, concerned for me, and it was very kind of them. They pulled me aside, um, these two men, and they just warned me about going to a place like Auburn, that I would, I would lose my faith there. I guess their fear, and maybe you've had fears like this, or, or um, you know, if you have kids or grandkids at, at a, a university like Auburn, or even worse, at Alabama, 
then you might, uh, you might have concerns that, you know, a, a professor is going to attack their faith or they're going to kind of succumb to the secular, secularism or, or, or just whatever there, and they're going to lose their faith. And so these gentlemen, they had these concerns and they brought them up to me. And, and, and in some sense, it, it was a valid concern. I remember my freshman year, I, I, I came, I entered Auburn as a physics major and I worked with, uh, in a physics lab. Now, I remember the, the professor actually telling me one day, I was telling him that I was going to go on a mission trip that summer and I wouldn't be able to work with him. And so he proceeds to explain to me that there's absolutely no evidence for a God. And that's pretty intimidating to be 18 years old and have a professor who I liked only because he reminded me of Conan O'Brien. But he, he, he told me that there was no God and kind of sat there for a minute. And so, I, you know, I, I remember not saying anything and being slightly intimidated. And of course, um, it is possible that I could have lost my faith through college. Um, in, in, in my 10 years of college ministry, I have known a few college students who've lost their faith. But the most dangerous thing in my life, and what I've recognized that the most dangerous thing in the lives of the students I've worked with isn't that they would come to lose their faith in God. But the most dangerous thing in our lives, um, and this is true whether you're a college student, whether you're a high school student, whether um, you, you are in your 60s, 70s, 80s, the most dangerous thing for us as believers isn't necessarily that we would lose our faith in God, but that we would have a false idea of who God is. That we would have a, a, a picture or a conception of God that is less than biblical. On your outlines, there's a quote from A.W. Tozer where he says that the, the most... Um, Sorry, I've lost my spot. He says, uh, what comes into your mind uh, when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I mean, if God is the supreme being, if God is the creator, if God is supposed to be the center of our lives, then what we think about when we think about him is the most important thing. And it's not just theoretical. It's not just about how you answer a survey or how you identify uh, with your religion, but it actually affects your life. And the easiest way to see this is to think about just people in your life. What you think about other people affects how you live and how you treat them. If you come in one day and, and, and you know, your, your, um, um, your sink is full of dishes and your spouse has not done the dishes, it matters if you think of your spouse as lazy or if you think of your spouse as hardworking because one of those pictures is going to affect how you interpret what's going on. You're either going to think they're too lazy to do the dishes and they've left them for you or if you think that they're a hardworking person, then you're going to think that he or she has just been too busy and you might even have empathy for them and you might do the dishes for them. You've had the person at work that you feel like they attack you or they don't like you or they're always undercutting you and they can say something fairly innocuous that if someone else said it, you would take it as a compliment or praise, but you take it from them as sarcasm. I remember hearing a story once of, of someone who their, their manager said to them after they got back from a two-week vacation, they said, wow, you had a great long vacation. And they took that as an insult, right? But that was a friend Right, you would say, yeah, I did. You might even think that they're, they're excited that you were able to get that kind of vacation. But if you see it as someone that's kind of opposed to you, then you're going to interpret what they're saying as an attack or an insult or kind of digging at you for being, at, for being away from work so long. I can remember years ago, I, d I did a wedding for a couple, and in the premarital uh, counseling, we were talking about conflict resolution, and they shared with me what their biggest fight was. 
and, um, and this was kind of in rural Kentucky. And one day, the, 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 the girl, uh, uh, she texted her fiance um, about something that had happened at work. She'd had a horrible day. And he texts back just a really short response, like, okay. And then she just texted him more about what was going on. And then he texted back, sorry. And then she texted him more that was going on. He texted her back another one-word answer, which I'm a terrible texter, so even getting a word from me would be an amazing thing. But for her, she thought, he's mad at me. Like something is wrong, he's mad at me, so he is, is, is not responding. So she started getting mad at him, and she started sending kind of snarky texts to him. And kind of find out, he was going to his grandfather's house, who lives in kind of backwoods Kentucky, and he's on these windy roads at night. So for him, the way he was going to show that he was being attentive was to text to her while he's driving, you know, at night down these roads, but he can only text one word. And she's receiving it, interpreting it as if he's mad at her. And so they had the worst fight of their relationship over something like that. And so you know from your life and you know from experience that, that how, uh, I'm ADHD, so something like that is just going to mess me up, um, that you know from your own life and you know from your own experience that how you think about someone, how, how you see their personality affects how you interpret it. And so with God, the way that you see God affects how you think about God, how you live, how you relate to God. It is a it is very, very practical thing. Um, there on your outline, how we think about God affects how we live. And what I've realized looking back on my life and what I realized um, years ago watching college students as they come in and begin to own their own faith is that I had begun my life and for many years had a, a, a conception, a picture of God that, that I thought was biblical, that I thought was accurate and that it affected how I lived and affected how I related to God and to his commands. And what I found out years ago studying Genesis was that it was not what the Bible taught. And what's amazing is that in the early chapters of Genesis, that there are kind of two pictures of God presented. One is biblical and one is not. And what I found over and over again in my life and in ministering to others is that so often what we think is the true picture of God is the, the misconception of God that's presented in the early chapters. What we think is, is uh, how God really is ends up being a false view of God that's presented. And so often we miss the way that the scriptures present God in the opening chapters. And so we, we can't go through all the, the first couple of uh, chapters of Genesis because it is so uh, lengthy and we'd be up here for a long time. But um, if, if, whether or not you're familiar with it, um, you, you probably know enough of it to kind of understand um, what we're talking about. I mean, the, in the first chapter of Genesis, God creates the world, and, and it happens in six days. And at the end of each stage, God says that he looks at it, and, and the Word says that, that he looks at it, and what he saw was, he said it was good, right? And the word there is tov. It's a word that means good, or it can mean pleasing, right? It can mean enjoyable, and so when God is creating the world, and again, he's not creating it for himself, when God is creating the world, he's looking at it, and, and his reaction to it is that what he is creating is good. And then we learn that um, um, in, in, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, that God creates the first humans, and he actually gives them the whole uh, world, the whole garden there, he gives it to them to rule over kind of, they're his, his, um, um, uh, they're his uh, ambassadors in some sense. And they're ruling over in his place. And he tells them that 
they can, they can have all this food to eat. They, they kind of uh, are over the animals. Um, he tells them that they're to go forth and multiply and all that that means. And so then when we get in chapter 2, and you can look in verses 8 and 9, that when, again, when it's, it's kind of picturing and it's a, a different look, a different image of the, uh, of the creation story, that there it describes what God has made. And it says, no, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. Um, next verse. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Notice this, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now, uh, and it says in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now just notice that in the very opening chapters, you get a picture of a God who's created a world that, that at each stage he says it's good. And when he puts humanity in it, he says that it's very good. And he gives the humans all of what he's made to eat. And what the way it describes it is that it's not just that it's, it's functional. It's not just it's food that they can eat and survive. It says that what he's given them is pleasing for them to look at. And that what he's given them is good for food. And he's given them one another, right? It wasn't, wasn't good that the first man was alone, so he created the first woman as his companion. And he tells the humans that, that they can eat of all the trees that they see except one, and they can go forth and be multiplied. And if you think about what God has done and the way that God is being presented, God is giving the humans this place to live that's full of joy, full of pleasing things. You don't get a picture of a God that's withholding. You don't get a picture of a God who doesn't care about our joy. You get a picture of a God who's created things, not for himself, but for humans, so that humans would have joy. We have marriages, we have companionship, we have food, we have a job. He gives the humans all of that. And so the opening chapters of Genesis presents a God that gives us this world for our joy, that has purposefully done things uh, so that they would be pleasing to us. And of course, the only commandment that they get is that the Lord God commanded them. It said, um, you can go to the next, and, and this is Genesis 2, 16 and 17. It said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, you, from, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so the only commandment you get um, negative of what they're not to do is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So whatever that means and whatever's going on there, you have to put it in the entire context of what's happened in Genesis 1 and 2. I, I was reading recently a book by a non-believer who was writing about Genesis, and they said that whatever you think about this command, it can't be something that God is kind of withholding from the humans that would be good for them. Because all the first two chapters are saying that everything God is doing is for, is, is for the humans to, to enjoy and to be pleasing for them. And that whatever it, it, for whatever the reason is that God has prohibited, prohibited them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's for their own good, right? It's for their own protection. God's not withholding from them. He's protecting them. And so if you think about it, in the opening pages of the Bible... The first commands that humans get is to eat food that is pleasing to look at and good for food. They're to, to, to multiply, be fruitful and multiply. They're to rule over the, the land that God has made. And they're to stay away from the, 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 the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, which is for their own protection. 
And so the opening pages of the Bible present a God that I I call the God of joy. That what God is doing in our lives and what God is working at and what God is providing for us is meant for us to have joy, for us to enjoy it, for it to be pleasing for us, to make us happy. But what happens, and I said at the opening, um, um, I said a few minutes ago that at the, in the opening chapters of Genesis that there are two conceptions of God. What happens really quickly is that a second view or a second picture or a second conception of God shows up in Genesis. So we get the God of joy, the God that's the source of your pleasure and enjoyment and your happiness, the God that provides for that, the God that if you want to have a joyful life, you seek it in him. And by the way, that theme is all throughout the scriptures. Think of how Jesus says in John 10 that he came to give life and life to its fullest. Or in John 15, 11, he says to his, his uh, disciples that what he is saying to them, he's saying so that they could have his joy and that their joy could be complete. And so that picture of God is all throughout the scriptures. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that another vision of God comes up. And it's a vision of God that I held when I was a young Christian. It's a vision of God that I've noticed a lot of college students have. And it's a vision of God that I've noticed that a lot of, of Christians, no matter your age, has. And I want you to see it. Uh, you can, it'll be on the screen, but you can turn there. It's in Genesis 3. And we'll start with verse 1. And, of course, this is the, the, the section that we often refer to as the fall. But it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now notice what happens in verse 4. Because the serpent isn't just tempting the first humans. The serpent isn't just kind of encouraging them to break the laws of God. He does something much more subtle, and he introduces a different view of God, and that's at the root of their temptation. The serpent says, you will not, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so notice that the serpent says, look, If you ate from this, you would be like God. In other words, that there's something that would be good for you, something you would like, something that maybe would make your life more enjoyable, that God is withholding from you. The serpent doesn't just say, hey, just break the commandments of God. The serpent says, God is keeping you from something that would be good for you something that you really in your heart of hearts would want that would make your life better, right? It's not just kind of empty temptation. The serpent shifts their view of God to a view of God where God is suddenly withholding. God is keeping something from them that would give them joy. And once you make that shift, the temptation becomes much more effective. It becomes much more easy for the first humans to then do what they actually did. It says, um, when the woman in verse six saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, right? She knew it was pleasing to the eye. 
right? God had said that. She knew it was good for food. God had said that. But now she's noticing it's desirable. It's something that they would really want, but God's telling them they can't have it. And that's the point at which she and her husband then broke the laws of God. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. They were, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings from themselves. And in a moment, of course, we won't read it, but they hide from God. So in this moment, when the serpent tempts them, what happens is their view of God shifts from God being the path and the source of their joy and their pleasure to suddenly God is an obstacle to it. And you've been there in your life. There are things in your life that you look at and you know that God has told you not to do that or God has told you to do it. And you think that your life would be better if you could do what God's told you not to do or if you didn't have to do the things that God has called you to do. And that shift, even though it's very subtle, I think is pervasive throughout Christian lives. And it's often kind of what we think about God. It's often how we think of God when we think about God. It's what I call the God of limitations. So rather than God being the source of our joy, God is suddenly the one who is limiting us from the things in life that would be best for us, that would be most pleasurable, that would be most enjoyable. And as we see in Genesis 3, once you make that shift, everything changes for you. Because look, if you believe in the God of joy, if you think God is the source of your joy, then whatever God has called you to, whatever commandment you encounter, then even if on the face of it it doesn't make sense to you, then what you're going to believe and what you're going to trust is that if you live that out, then the result of that will be joy. The result of that will be the best life for you. That if you think that God is really the source of your joy, then if you want a happy life, if you want a life full of joy, then the way you're going to find that isn't in what the world is calling you to. The way you're going to find that is by being a disciple of Jesus. But if you see God as the God of limitations, it's going to change how you live. The imagery I often think of when I think about what the the spiritual life of of a person who thinks of God as a God of limitations is, and I know this is going to sound silly, but I think of it as a a dog, a dog, I say I sound very Southern right now, a dog in the fence, right? My grandfather, when I was growing up, he had this rat terrier, and the dog would would often just stand, I mean, for almost, it seemed like for hours at at the edge of his chain link fence, looking at the squirrels, and just, you could just tell that dog wanted more than anything else to get at those squirrels. And if you see God as the God of limitations, then God is that fence keeping you from the things you really wish you could get at. And I mean, think about the dog. The dog's fixated on it. And the truth is, when you have the idea of the God of limitations, your interior life is one where you're fixated on the things that God has told you you can't have. And even if you're strong enough, and even if you're disciplined enough to not go after those things, that's still a pretty miserable life. I mean, if you think that your life would be better if you could just pursue selfish ambition and pursue money, but you just think, well, God's called you to not be selfishly ambitious, God's called you not to do those things, then what's going to happen in your life is anytime you see something that's nicer or better or more expensive, 
or a better status symbol, then what your heart's going to do is going to fixate it on it. Just like that dog, that dog on the squirrel on the other side of the fence. And here's the thing. We have raised generations of people that think that that is really what the Christian life is like. That life would be much, better, much more enjoyable in this world if we could just go after the things the world goes after. But God tells us not to. Why? Because if we can just have enough discipline in this life, then eventually we'll be in heaven and things will be great. And then we'll have true joy. But you know, that, that sounds like kind of like a diet, right? Because <laughs> right, you think about it like, well, I'm going to avoid the chocolate cake because even though that would be the best thing to eat right now, I'll live longer if I don't have it, right? <laughs> and that's how we think spiritually. The things that would be best to have right now, well, if we want to live eternally, we, just, we need to turn our nose up at those things and eat the broccoli and the asparagus. That's the God of limitations. And, and here's the thing, that's how so many of us think, but that is the very view in the Bible that's introduced by the serpent. That's not the view that the Bible introduces. Over and over and over again, the scriptures make it clear that if we follow God, what we get is not misery. It's not a life feeling like we're limited from the things that we could really have, that we would really want, I mean. But again and again and again, the scriptures make it clear that if we follow God, what results in our life is joy. I mean, think about in your life the things that you struggle with, whatever they are, you know, pride, greed, lust, whatever they are. And I bet that in those areas that are the source of, of severe struggles for you, I would bet that at the root of those things is a view of God, maybe just in those areas, um, as the God of limitations. That what would be really better for your life is if you could respond to that annoying coworker with harsh words. What would be better for your life is if you could just pursue money with reckless abandonment. But if you believe what the opening chapters of the Bible says, and if you, view, if you believe the picture of God that the scriptures tell us about over and over and over again, then what you're going to believe is that kind of turning the other cheek to the person at work is the path to joy. And what you're going to believe is that a life of generosity, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, to instruct the rich to be generous, what, in good deeds, that that's the path to joy, not accumulating more wealth and accumulating more things. Like Jesus says, life does not consist in the abundance of things. And if you really believe that God is the source of your joy, then you can actually believe that. But if you listen to what the world tells us and what all the advertisement tells us, then you're going to think that life really does consist in the abundance of things and that God is the being who's keeping you from that. And so what God calls us to isn't that we kind of give up pleasure or joy in this life. What God calls us to isn't a life where we're just kind of the strongest, most disciplined, most military-like people and we can just say no to the pleasure of this world and we would just pursue pleasure in heaven. But right now we can just kind of have, eat the, the, the um, uh, you know, broccoli and spinach and do our workouts and all that kind of stuff. What God calls you to is a life of joy. What God has provided for you is a life of pleasure. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis 
from his essay, The Weight of Glory, um, where he says that it would seem that our Lord finds, um, sorry, uh, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Right? Isn't, isn't that insightful? It's not that we have too many desires, it's that our desires are too weak and they're for the wrong things. He says we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And what God is calling you, what the opening chapters of the scriptures call us to, is to not be easily pleased with the things of this world, but to recognize that true joy and true happiness and true pleasure is found in the things that God provides us. And I would bet that in, in, in almost all of us, that there's some corner of our lives and some corners of our souls where we really don't believe that. And what I'm calling you to this morning is, is to get a glimpse of the glorious picture of God that the Bible gives us as in every area of our lives offering us joy and pleasure and happiness. And I tell you one thing that bothers me as a college minister, just as a minister in general, is that, is that I wonder how many people in our communities, how many people that used to sit in the pews of your church have rejected God because they thought God was the God of limitations? How many people in this community thought they were rejecting the God of the Bible when they're really rejecting the God the serpent presented? Isn't it a, a powerful opportunity for your church to have a witness and for you to have a witness to your family and to your neighborhood and to your workplace and to your classrooms? Not of a God who limits you from all the fun that everybody else is having, but of, of a God who actually points you to the better desires, to the stronger desires, who fulfills you deep within your heart and gives you a joy and a happiness that the world cannot have and the world doesn't even know. And I hope that through his spirit that you have that. And I hope that if you've been struggling with um, seeing God as the God of, God of limitations, I hope that through God's spirit that this word will kind of work in your hearts and mind. And I hope that you can come to see the God as the source of your joy and the source of your pleasures. And that whatever he calls you to is not a path to misery or to self-discipline, but a path to joy. If you want to come forward um, as we sing for prayers or to talk to someone, I think Nathan's going to come up and receive anybody um, who wants to come forward.